Welcome to the Audio Conference for Pastors. This episode is an archived broadcast with our host, Bobby Gilstrap. Bobby is a former pastor, church starter, director of missions, and now the lead missionary and executive director for the Baptist State Convention of Michigan. Now, let's join Bobby and his guests for this archived edition of the Audio Conference for Pastors. Welcome to our audio conference for pastors on developing leaders in the small church with our guest, Dr. Terry Dorsett. My name is Bobby Gilstrap, and I'm the host for today's national teleconference. Let me first introduce you to our guest for today's conference, and then we're going to jump right into our five questions that must be answered. Our guest today is Dr. Terry Dorsett. He has a master's degree in religious education from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary and recently received his doctor of ministry degree in mission administration from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. He currently serves as a church planting missionary with the North American Mission Board of Southern Baptists. Terry and his wife, Kay, spent time doing youth ministry in South Carolina before moving to Vermont, where he currently serves as a church planting missionary. Kay partnered with uh, two other families in 2004 to start Faith uh, Community Church. And after several months of Bible study in the Dorset home, the small group became a Sunday morning worship service and has now continued to grow. The church has multiplied itself through other churches and other ministries, and uh, Terry will probably share with us how they've done some of that as well. Now, much of what we're going to be discussing today is is coming from, at least the content, coming from a new book that has just been published. Uh, Terry uh, has authored the book, Developing Leadership Teams in Bivocational Churches, and it's being released or has been released by Cross Books uh, just uh, not long ago. So if you're interested in that, you'll want to make sure and get a copy of that. Uh, he also writes regularly, does a lot of things on blogs and other kinds of writing as well. So, Dr. Dorsett, we are so glad to have you joining us today and to have you to be a part of our audio conference for pastors. Well, it's good to be with you, Bobby. It's very good to be with you, and it's exciting. I've never done anything quite like this before, so it's kind of exciting to be talking to people from around the country from my office here in Vermont. Absolutely. Well, we're glad to have you with us and glad to have you take part. Now, I'm going to remind remind you, but for everyone else's sake as well, make sure and speak up real clearly. Uh, sounds like we've got a, a little bit of a weaker connection today than what we sometimes do. Um, this is what we want to do as we begin today. Uh, I want to start... Uh, by giving you the opportunity to kind of just lay a groundwork for where we're going to go today, uh, there is just no way in the world that in the short amount of time we have we can really unpack all of the critical issues uh, that are, are facing us as far as uh, this particular topic. But give us a, a, a kind of a groundwork uh, of where we need to go, and then we'll jump right into the five questions. Well, you know, I've been in Vermont now for 17 years, and almost all of our churches in Vermont are very small. And so when I came to Vermont, I just assumed that the same stuff I'd learned in, in bigger churches in Virginia and in South Carolina would work in Vermont as well, and very quickly discovered that those ideas didn't always translate into a new context, a new culture well. So I just became burdened for how can we help small churches be effective. And I became convinced that just because you're a small church doesn't mean you're you know, you have to be a bad church or a weak church or a, you know, an ineffective church. And so I just began looking for ways to try to help small churches be as effective as a big church without having to necessarily do the same things as a big church did. And so that kind of became my quest about 17 years ago and has continued for all these years. And I feel like we finally have begun to turn the corner in Vermont and seeing a lot of small churches do really big ministry, and that's exciting stuff. So that's kind of where a lot of these ideas came from. It's just out of our own experience here in Vermont helping very good. You still there, Terry? Yep, we lost him. 
Uh, well, for the rest of the hour, I guess I'll have to, no, I'm just kidding, guys. Uh, hang on a second, he's gonna have to dial back in. Uh, let me give you real quick while he's doing that, uh, you should have downloaded already the question guide that is on, uh, uh, the website when you registered, and there was a link to that. Uh, let me give you just an overview of, uh, some of the things in his book that deal with this very issue. It's well worthwhile getting, and I've got it here in front of me. Uh, but one of the values of uh, the book that uh, Dr. Dorset has done here uh, is Terry's put together a very practical piece. It has a lot of uh, uh, practical handouts, uh, things that can be done in teaching uh, your congregation, teaching those in the congregation various uh, aspects of what needs to be done. Uh, for instance, uh, one I'm just flipping through the book right now. Here's one on how to avoid visitation disaster. Uh, and it's a teaching that a pastor can do with leadership. Uh, has a student worksheet there, uh, a thing on sermon series and, and how to do sermon series in the, the bivocational or small church. Uh, a variety of things of that sort that can be uh, helpful as well. Uh, and then the variety of uh, kinds of ministry that uh, can take place. He, he starts off initially in it giving some biblical principles to consider and then talks about some of the relevant trends that we find uh, in America today that uh, impact small churches uh, and then talks about how to gather and train those uh, ministry teams. Um, all of these things are things that he lays out in the early chapters of the book, so that, that's extremely valuable. And then uh, he gives an introduction to preaching and pastoral care. Having pastored several small churches myself, I know the, the value of uh, being able to understand that and be able to do that quickly while you're doing so many different things. Uh, all right, uh, Dr. Dorsett, you back on the line with us? <laughs> I'm here. I don't know what happened, right. but I'm back. Yeah, I don't know what happened, but we're glad to have you back because I was not treading water well. Basically, what I was doing was just kind of going over some of the highlights that uh, you've covered in the book, which is the basis for what we're going to be discussing, uh, to let our, our uh, participants have some idea of the value of the, the practicality, really, of this book. Look, why don't we go ahead and jump into our five questions, Terry, uh, and uh, start unpacking those, and then we'll see what questions we do have in the end. Uh, our first question that we want to dialogue about is should uh, a church have a full-time pastor? Help us to understand uh, if this is a mandatory thing. Well, I think it a very important thing to understand is that both in the New Testament and in much of church history, churches did not have a pastor who devoted all of their time to the church. Uh, we've always had pastors who had other jobs as well as the church, and it's only been in the last 30 or 40 years that now we think everyone has to go off to a seminary and get a big fancy degree and become a professional, and and now that's all they do is church work. So we've got that somehow mixed up in our mind, and so you know we need to ask ourselves missionally as well as practically, do we need a full-time pastor? Now it's nice to be a full-time pastor, and you know, just have one job, but do we need that? And at a practical level, you know, we have to ask, can the church afford it? You know, obviously if you're a bigger church, you can afford it. These days, smaller churches are struggling with that. We used to think that if a church had 75 adults, that they could afford a full-time pastor. But that's now edged up to 125 adults. That's what it takes to really have a full-time pastor. And a lot of that's because people aren't giving like they used to. Some of it's stewardship issues. There's a lot of reasons, but that's just the reality of where we're at. Well, most small churches in America today don't have 125 adults. So, therefore, that means most small churches in America today really can't afford a full-time pastor even if they want one and as much as we don't like that that's just the reality of our situation and I think we have to ask ourselves if we're always broke if our church never has enough money for anything 
we may just have to ask ourselves, is it time to reorganize and do things a little differently, even though that's a lot of effort on the pastor's part, but that's just the reality of the both the economy and the spiritual condition of the churches that we have across America right now. The, the the problem with that for many churches, I would assume today, especially churches that are in that range of uh, 25, 30 years and older, uh, if they have that mentality but their size is not uh, up to at least 125 or better, uh, I, I would think, looking at it, that many of those churches have found themselves in a position of uh, the, the salary and the benefits and that kind of thing for that pastor are consuming so much of the resources the church really doesn't have available to itself then to be able to invest in other kingdom uh, endeavors, outreach and evangelism and missions and other kinds of things that they should be investing in because they're trying to, uh, to take care of that pastor uh, there. Yes, that's correct. That's exactly what happens. The church becomes, you know, almost all the offering ends up going to two things, usually the building and then the pastor, and there's nothing left to do outreach, to do ministry, to support missions, and there's nothing left for discipleship. You know, it all goes to those two things, and obviously we have to have buildings and we have to have pastors, but we may have to rethink through, do we need a pastor whose sole income is derived from the church? And unfortunately, what also happens is sometimes churches think that they're paying their pastor enough to be full-time, and they really are not. And so a lot of pastors are feeling the pressure of a church that expects them to devote all of their time to that church when in reality they're, the income they're making from the church is not nearly enough. So the pastor's having to look for some alternative income anyway, and it would be better if we could just help the church understand that, hey, what you're doing really is a bivocational situation, so give this guy permission to go out and get a job and take care of his family instead of him being both stressed out and broke because there's nothing worse than being stressed and broke and many pastors in small churches churches are are the, that's, is the way they're feeling so i think it's important that we ask that question you know should we have a full-time pastor and if not then what do we do about it how do we still have a healthy church even if our pastor is a bivocational pastor and we're, we need to move on to the second question we're going to run out of time but i, I would think that is a an issue that needs to be dealt with from both sides not just the church needs to say hey our pastor needs to be but we need pastors who say, I need to be, for the benefit of the kingdom, benefit of those other kinds of things, and uh, and be developing even our young guys. Many of our young guys in seminary and other need to be cast this vision that they need to be developing professional skills in other ways so that they can be able to be effective in the kingdom, uh, pastoring that size of a church or a smaller church, but yet still be able to provide adequately for their family at that point. Uh, let's go to question number two. How do I overcome the feeling that I must do it all by myself? And that, that question really does play into the first question. You know, if I'm not going to be a full-time pastor and I'm going to have to give, you know, some of my time to some other job, that means there's going to be things that I can't do in the church that I used to do. You know, I may not be able to teach the adult Sunday school class, preach the sermon, and also do the Wednesday night Bible study. I mean, it may not have time to prepare three times. So how do I overcome that feeling that most pastors have if I've got to do it all? You know, and, and it's not just the teaching and the preaching. Sometimes the pastor's vacuuming the carpet and cutting the grass and turning the lights on. He's a lot of times doing way too much. And it, it, I don't think pastors mean to do that. It just happens over time. And at some point, the pastor has to ask themselves, why do I feel like I have to do it all? And I have tough conversations sometimes with pastors about that question. It's been my you know, experience over the last 17 years that pastors who feel like they have to do it all oftentimes are coming from one of two perspectives. 
they're either uh, filled with pride because they think no one else in the church can do it as well as they do, and I think we all would recognize that that's probably not a good attitude to have. You know, pride is never going to be helpful to church growth or to church health, but some pastors have that. Then the other end of the spectrum is also true. Some pastors feel they have a very low self-esteem, and they feel kind of bad about themselves, and they're worried that if they don't do it, someone else might actually do it better. <laughs> someone might be able to teach the Sunday school class better or lead the Wednesday Bible study better. And then the pastor might feel like he's unloved or unneeded because someone else has actually exceeded in a certain area than he does. So I think the question that we have to look into is our own hearts as pastors. Why do I think as an individual that I'm the one that has to do all this stuff? Why can't I learn to release some of these things? Why can't I give up some of these duties that are maybe important but that other people in the church could do do as well or perhaps even better than the pastor? I mean, does the pastor have to cut the grass? Does he have to vacuum the carpet? All those kinds of things. We just need to, to learn to release, it's, it's a, but it's an internal thing. It's more in our own hearts and our own minds, but we have to learn to do it. If we want the church to be healthy, we have to. it's only going to get so big if we're doing it all. So we've got to learn to release so other people can do some and then the church can be stronger. And that feeling, uh, if I hear you right, that feeling is really uh, self-imposed most of the time. Uh, or, or do you feel like this is something that is developed because of the way the church uh, Im- imposes their expectations on the church or, or on the pastor, or is it really about uh, 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 an issue of both contribute to that? Well, it's both, but I think that the the most people in the church realize that the pastor shouldn't do it all and would be willing to help. But there's always that one or two vocal people in every small church that have things they say to keep the pastor feeling you know, in a sense of pressure. And part of being a leader is learning how to lovingly speak to those one or two who are always saying, well, that's what we pay the pastor for, to say to them, no, let me show you from the Scripture what you pay the pastor for, which is to teach you guys how to do the work of the ministry. And so we have to be willing to be loving and kind, but help those one or two people who are always pressuring the pastor just to realize that that's an inappropriate pressure. And then we have to be able to get out of that pressure we give ourselves. I think most pastors, the stress they feel is oftentimes the stress they put on themselves to try to always do more and and make every visit and be in the hospitals every day. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves, and I think the church oftentimes understands that we're real people and can only go so far, and so there is that both, there's both and. We have a lot of pressure on ourselves. We get a little bit of pressure from key people. I think the rest of the church, though, if we'd explain it to them, they would understand and support us, and so it is a growth, it's a personal growth process. Yeah, definitely a, an issue of balance and uh, and priorities, no question. Well, let's look at question number three. What principles will help a bivocational pastor avoid burnout? Well, that comes right out of the second question. You know, if I finally realize that I no longer have to do it all and I want to give some of this stuff away, well, then how do I do it? You know, how do I keep myself from burning out? That is, without question, the greatest danger of being a bivocational pastor is that, you know, if you're working a full-time job and also working at the church and you've got a family and you're trying to keep your own grass cut at home and trying to keep your car going and all that, the time demands are huge, and so it's easy to get burned out. And so three principles that pastors really have to think through in their mind. First of all, they have to be able to build a team that will work with them. You know, a lot of pastors say, well, there's no one to help me in the church. Well, there's all kinds of people in the church. We have to build a team that will help us do the work of the ministry. And I think sometimes we're looking for someone to move in from somewhere else who's ready to teach Sunday school and be a deacon and be a leader. And that occasionally happens. I mean, we occasionally have someone move to Vermont who's a strong Christian and joins one of our churches, and that's always a blessing. But to be honest with you, that's not where most of our leaders come from. They come from the people who are already sitting in the pew. So the pastor has to be willing to 
build a team. But then once he builds a team and gets a group of people who want to help it happen, you know, want to make things happen in the church, and then he has to train that team. There's nothing more frustrating than to be asked to do something but not really know how to do it. And pastors, most pastors, you know, they're go-getters, they go to conferences, they read books, they study on their own, they learn a lot of stuff, and they probably can self-train themselves without a lot of other people telling them what to do. But most lay people, they don't go to those conferences, they didn't read those books, they don't have the ability to self-train themselves, so someone's going to have to train them. Of course, the pastor is the most logical person to do it, but if he doesn't have time, that's why he's part of the Baptist Association. That's why he's a part of the state convention. He can call upon those resources. And, you know, I tell my pastors, if you want your church to be trained in something, host the training at your church. And then your people don't even have to travel. They can host that training right there, and it can be done at your church and bring people in from other places. But we got to train the team. We can't expect people to do the work of the ministry if they don't know what they're doing. And then the last one, which is probably the hardest principle to put into practice, is we got to trust the team. You know, when we give our some responsibilities away to someone, they're probably not going to do it exactly like we do it. They're probably going to put their own personality into it. And at some point, we have to be willing to trust that even though their way is different, that doesn't mean their way is wrong. Uh, if the Holy Spirit is filling them and guiding them, that's the same Holy Spirit that's in us, and the Holy Spirit is going to use them. So if we give up hospital visitation or we give up nursing home ministry or, or we give up the Wednesday night Bible study and let a different person in the church lead those things, we have to trust that the way they're doing it is from the Lord, it is going to be effective, and it is going to work, even if it's different from the way we would do it. And that's probably the hardest principle to put into practice, but we've just got to come to a place. If we want the church to be healthy, we've got to trust the team that God's given us, the people the Lord has already sent to the church to be able to lead the way God wants them to lead. Okay, but Pastor Dorset, playing an advocate for a moment, it's not going to be as successful. <laughs> uh, you gave it to the team, but they're not getting it. And I'm sitting here watching from afar and watching that ministry, which I've invested in as a pastor, and it's falling apart. So I need to jump back in and rescue the team, or what do I need to do? Well, those are challenges. Those are challenges. You know, the pastor is probably the best trained, most energetic, uh, most uh, enthusiastic person in the congregation. Probably that's why he's the pastor. And when he turns that over to someone else, there is going to be a, 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 probably a little bit lesser skill level. There's going to be a little bit lesser enthusiasm. But the pastor has to ask himself, if I do it all, I can only do so much. If I release, you know, if I have a, a men's ministry that's only at 80% of what it was when I was leading it, but now I have a men's ministry, and I have a youth ministry, and I have a nursing home ministry, you know, we can have four or five ministries going at once, whereas if the pastor is doing it all, there's only so many hours in the day. He's going to be doing one thing, maybe two things, and the other stuff's not going to happen at all. Or he's going to do it all and end up destroying his family, and you know, he's going to come home one day and his wife and kids are going to be gone because they haven't seen him in six months. So the pastor has to ask himself, you know, even if it's not done quite as good as I would do it, do I trust the team to do it in a way that is acceptable to the Lord? Very good. Well, let's move on to number four. We may come back and unpack some of those principles some more because I think the issue of burnout is huge. Uh, among many, many in ministry, and uh, I think these principles would be good to be able to unpack some more. There may be some questions, too, in our Q&A time. But our, our fourth question that we want to talk about in our five questions that must be answered is, what three types of visitation can lay leaders do effectively? 
Well, you know, I really struggled with helping my the people in my churches that I've worked with over the last few years do visitation. You know, we all think that's a great thing to do. We all believe that. But actually getting people to do it is a challenge, especially getting them to do it on a regular basis. And I think one of the things that I came to realize is that I was asking lay people to do the kinds of visitation that most of them weren't comfortable with. For instance, we want them to go out maybe and, and go visit, you know, door to door. Or maybe we want them to go visit a visitor who showed up to church last Sunday. And, well, you know, most people don't feel comfortable going to meet a stranger. They don't feel comfortable doing that kind of stuff. So I began to kind of, you know, ask lay people, well, what would you feel comfortable doing? And there's three things that I found they would do. Um, one is a lot of them do feel comfortable going to visit an absentee, someone who's already at church, who's already their friend, who they've already known for five years, but who's missed for the last three or four Sundays. Most of them do feel comfortable with that. It's, you know, it's a friend. It's someone they already know. It's someone they probably are going to see anyway this week. So why not just insert into the conversation when you go see them, hey, we've missed you at church and we want you to come back. And I found a lot of a lot of lay people say, yes, that's something. I'm very comfortable doing that and I feel good at it. The second kind is actually the hospital visitation. You know, a lot of pastors spend a lot of time at the hospital. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but if there's only so many hours in the day, that's something you can give away. And a lot of people in the church, they care about each other. They love each other. So if someone in the church is sick and in the hospital, you know, that's something you can train the people to do. And most people do feel comfortable doing that. And then the third one that I actually was surprised with, and that's a moment of crisis. I call it crisis visitation when something really bad happens. It might be a car accident or some some really bad thing happens and you need someone to be able to drop what they're doing right then and go be with the family. And of course, if a pastor is working a full-time job somewhere, he might not be able to get off work. It depends on what his boss would say. He may not be able to drop what he's doing and, and rush over to the hospital. It may take him an hour to make some arrangements to be able to get away from work and to have a lay person willing to do that and is helpful. And I found lay people actually were willing in a moment of crisis to drop what they were doing and rush somewhere. Now, they don't often know what to say, but what we teach them to do is you don't have to say anything. Just be there. Just practice the presence of just the ministry of presence. Just be there present and say a prayer. And, you know, and I think that a lot of lay people, they say, yeah, I can do that. And it makes them feel really good at the end of the week to know, you know, I went that one time on Tuesday afternoon and helped so-and-so whose car was broke down and I just stayed with him until the record came or whatever the case may be. Uh, so that lay people are actually willing to do crisis ministry a lot more than what we realized because they sense the urgency of it at that moment. So that's three times, three types that they can do very effectively. There's others, other kinds of visitation we can teach them how to do, but those are three that you usually don't have to convince them to do. They're usually willing to do it and excited to do it, and it's very fulfilling for them to do those three types of visitation. Now, you mentioned this just briefly there, but what do you do in training for these areas? Uh, I know they're more comfortable, therefore they're kind of uh, already disposed to be willing to do that. Uh, but what have you done to try to help uh, develop some of those individuals who are willing to do this to be more effective? Well, I'll tell you what we do, and it's kind of funny, but it works. We do actually some role-playing. Um, you know, years ago I took a course on witnessing, and we actually had to go door-to-door in the church. We went to different Sunday school classes and witnessed to the people who were behind the door, which was, you know, they were all church members. It was all kind of made up, but it actually helped us to get more comfortable doing it. And so we've taken that same concept and applied it to this. We have some, some role-plays that we give that we've designed, and we have some, some sort of fake visits that we do where lay people are sort of doing that with each other. And we laugh a little bit, and it 
you know, everyone gets kind of tickled at it, but it's, it also kind of lowers your defenses. You realize, hey, I can do this. You know, I just said those words. I just said the prayer with this person. I can do this. So then when you, you know, are doing that same thing out in real life, you've already done it several times in the role plays, and there's a good chance the person you were role playing with is perhaps the person in the hospital <laughs> that, that you really are going to see. It's someone in your church probably. So you kind of get to the hospital and say, hey, remember when we were practicing this three months ago? Now we're doing it for real, and it kind of breaks the ice. So that's how we do it. We do role-playing and, and try to help them. Now, that may not work for everybody, but we find if people do it once or twice in a safe setting, then they're willing to do it in a in a you know in an outside real setting. The other thing we do for people who are a little more shy, maybe not quite as outgoing, we get the pastor to take them with them on two or three visits and let them watch the pastor do it. And then we say to the pastor, now when you go the next time, just let that lay person do one thing. Maybe say the prayer or read one verse of scripture, and you sort of work it up to where that lay person eventually is leading the whole visit. And then eventually you can say, well, why don't you go make that visit by yourself? You know, I don't I don't have to go with you as the pastor. And so so we use role plays and we use that modeling and that's those two things. Seem to work really well I, I would think some of this plays right back into question number two where we have the feeling of wanting to do it all ourselves and uh, I, I know I've worked with pastors over the years that felt like they had to make every hospital visit or if somebody was there they had to be there every day for extended periods of time and uh, those kinds of things that there is an appropriate time and I think sometimes that line is kind of hard to discern uh, but there are obviously times when, when our, our laity in our churches can be very, very present uh, and represent Christ's love to those individuals that are in our fellowship without the pastor having to be there the whole time uh, right. in, in the midst of that ministry. Uh, but I, I think that does go back to that second question. Uh, we feel like we have to, to do it. There's a, a sense uh, that we need to. But this is another area of empowerment and trust, I would assume, isn't it? Right, you have to trust that those lay leaders are going to say something worthwhile, and and you know, and I know I'm not here to just to you know promote the particular book that I just wrote, but we actually have three chapters in that book where we talk about what to say, what not to say, so that the lay people can actually have some level of training. But there's other books, other resources out there. There's plenty of things that you can use to train people so that you can feel comfortable that when they go to the hospital, they're actually going to help, or when they go visit an absentee or a crisis person, you know, they can actually help the situation, not make it worse. Because what you don't want to have to do is clean up someone else's mess. But if we train people, they can do that well. And you know, I have had in, in my life some times when I've been in the hospital, and you know, it's nice to have someone stop by and just say a prayer with you and they're only there two or three minutes and leave, it's actually kind of awkward when some pastor shows up and he wants to stay 20 minutes. You don't know what to say. I mean, you, you appreciate him being there, but he's just like this person and you don't know what to do with him. And you're kind of glad when he finally leaves. So we need to think about it from the sick person's perspective as well as right. from the pastor's perspective. So anyway, some thoughts well, on that. Well, and uh, just uh, just another word, and we've already talked about it a little bit, but uh, in in your book, you do talk about making the hospital visits, and you talk about making crisis visits and how to avoid the visitation disaster, and, and you actually do have an evaluation form on visitation role plays that you lay out there. So you, you provided some very practical stuff in that as well, so I think that, that would be helpful to our participants to know that. Okay, let's look at our fifth question, uh, the six things that a man must know to do lay preaching. Share those with us. 
Well, you know, when I first started thinking about that, you know, I thought, well, now, there's a lot of laymen. You know, of course, obviously, some people are called to preach, and that's a whole different category. But there's a lot of laymen who are not called to preach. They have no interest in ever being a pastor or, you know, that kind of thing. But at the same time, we, we believe in the priesthood of the believer, so every layman ought to be willing to and able to do something for the Lord, you know, if it's only once a year when the pastor's on vacation. So as I begin to think about that, the first thing I really had to help laymen sort of get into their heads is that they can do this. So that's number one, <laughs> that a lay person can do this. You know, they can preach. They don't have to be ordained. They don't have to be trained. They don't even have to be called to preach. If it's only something they're going to do once or twice a year, they're called to serve, and we're all called to serve the Lord. And so that's the first thing is to help lay people realize they can do this with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and with some training from their pastor. They can fill the pulpit from time to time. Now, obviously, if they want to do, they want to actually be a pastor, that's going to take a whole different level of training, and we've got schools and all kinds of things they can do to, to get all of that. But the first thing is to help them understand they can do this if we're talking about doing it from time to time. The second thing they've got to do is they've got to know how to select the text. When I first began working with young, uh, with young people and with young men who were trying to figure out if they wanted to preach or not, you know, they, would, they would say, well, what do I preach from? You know, they didn't have a clue. How do you, do you just open the Bible and pick something? And so you know, we need to help them figure out what is the text? How do you select a text? It might be your favorite scripture. It might be um, some particular text the pastor assigns them. You know, I frequently, when I'm first working with a new fellow who's trying to learn how to do some preaching, I usually assign him a couple of texts. There are some passages that are much easier to preach than others, and I want to give him an easy one that he can, you know, be fairly successful with and, and not have him pick something that's going to be a little more obscure and he's going to struggle with it. So help him select a text. Then the third thing is how do they actually prepare the sermon itself? That You know, how do they say something worthwhile when they get up there in front of the congregation. How do they put that together? And so I teach them how to use three things. They need to know how to use a concordance so they can find the scriptures. They need to know how to use a Bible dictionary so they can define the words, the places, the names, all that kind of stuff that's in the passage. And then they know how to, need to know how to use a commentary that would help them understand some of the verses that they may not understand without without some help. And so we try to teach them how to use those three resources as they prepare the sermon. Uh, then number four is how do you present the sermon? You know, when you, you're you going to preach twice a year when the pastor's on vacation, what do you do? Do you stand up there reading note cards? Do you, you know, stand behind the pulpit with your knees knocking? How do you actually present the sermon? And we teach basically the stuff that we try to teach there is just stuff on public speaking, how to be a good public speaker. Uh, you know, it's, it's very sad when a guy has put a lot of work into a, a message and he really has a burden to share this information with the congregation but he just can't, his delivery falls flat, he just can't get the information across, and that's frustrating, it's frustrating to the congregation, it's frustrating to the speaker, and so we try to just teach him some general things that are good public speaking stuff, and show him this can be done, you, you can do this, this is, public speaking happens all over the place, and, and you can do this. Uh, then last we, or the fifth I think, is we talk about how to conclude the sermon. You know, a lot of people, they got this idea that they want to get across, but then they're not quite sure how to wrap it all up in the end. That last five minutes of a sermon is critical. How do we conclude the sermon? How do we sum it up? How do we give a concluding thought? How do we lead into perhaps an invitation that we might invite people to respond in some way to the sermon? And, and you know, we try to show them half a dozen different ways in which they can conclude a sermon because there are different ways to do it depending on the context and depending on the, the situation and all of that. So they need to know how to conclude a sermon. And then lastly, they, they need to know how to use a sermon series. And we I, I put that last one in 
in because in our particular context, and I don't know what it's like in Michigan and where all the people that are listening in are from, but but in Vermont, if a you know we don't have any retired pastors, we have one in the whole association, one retired pastor. You know, when you retire in Vermont, you go to Florida. You know, you don't stay in Vermont; it's too cold up here. So when a layman gets asked to speak at a church, it's possible that they're going to ask him to come back a couple more weeks because there may not, if the pastor's had surgery and needs six weeks to recover, there's not a retired pastor to do that. Some layman's going to have to do that. And, or if a church is without a pastor for three months, you know, it's going to be a deacon. It's going to be a layman from some church that's going to be filling that pulpit. And if you're only preparing sermons from, well, my favorite scripture is, well, what happens after week three when you've run out of favorite scriptures? You know, how do you put together a six or eight week series where you can actually have something to say for six or eight weeks? That may not happen a lot for a lot of speakers, but when it does happen, you want to be prepared. So we created that really out of our context here in Vermont to help a guy be able to talk for several weeks if he had to, and it does frequently happen here in our context. When you uh, are looking at working with those guys, how, how do you identify guys who you feel, um, I don't want to say just have the ability, but are, are good candidates for lay preaching in your congregation? Well, we ask the pastors to do that. Of course, since I'm the director you know, of the association, I say to the pastors, give me the names of two or three guys in your church who you think could do this if they wanted to. And in the pastors, we have 37 churches. So, you know, when we did this the first time, we had 12 pastors who responded, and we ended up with about 35 guys that we trained. And as we go through it, you know, times in the future, there will be some of those guys that may take it again as a refresher course, but there will also be new guys who, you know, get interested. So we let the pastors help us figure that out. But what I tell the pastors is what they really are looking for is a guy who loves the Lord and wants to serve his church. He's not necessarily called to preach. Of our of all those guys we trained uh, year or so ago, two of them have been since then felt a call to ministry and are now pursuing more training to become a pastor. But the rest of them, they just they just love the Lord and had a heart to serve, and so we gave them some tools to be able to serve their church when this need arose. Very good. Well, let's do this. Let's go ahead and transition into our Q&A. We're just a couple of minutes ahead of schedule, but that's okay uh, if we have some other questions from our participants uh, in our uh, room today. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to open the phone lines for our conference participants to ask questions. Uh, now, participants, you're going to need to self-mute your phone. Uh, you'll do that on our conference bridge by pressing 4 star and then unmute the phone by doing the same thing. If you want to ask a question, you'll press four star. You'll need to press a, a four star either way. Uh, we're going to uh, unmute all of the phone lines here in just a moment, and you'll hear a computer voice tell you we've unmuted the lines, and you'll need to have your line muted. Uh, even a few lines unmuted uh, create a lot of background noise on, on the phone, so we, we want to eliminate that. Now, your phone may be able to uh, mute itself, and feel free to use that function if you'd rather do that rather than the four-star feature on the conference bridge. Um, finally, do us a favor. Uh, if you will, when uh, you ask your question, if you'll please give us your name and where you serve before asking your question or making your comment. Uh, if there's much of a lull, then I'll jump back in and continue the conversation with Terry uh, about our topic. But we want to give you opportunity to be able to uh, uh, ask your questions. So, all right, let's take just a pause. Let's uh, unmute the lines. You have your line muted, and then uh, we'll start. All right, all right. we can have Excellent. someone to give us your name and ask the first question. Do we have someone who has a question? I'll be yeah, speak right up. Charles Lewis from Bible, Arkansas. Yes, ask Terry your question, Charles. Okay, the question is on the uh, 
question that we talked about, helping them to understand uh, they need to be a bivocational yeah, rather than a full-time church. What success and what, what, what have you done, Terry, to, to accomplish that in church? Well, Charles, that's a really great question, and it is an ongoing process because obviously all pastors would like to be full-time. You that's the, it's bad that's the, the easiest. Are you there? Yes. Yeah, we, we've still right, got anyway. somebody unmuted apparently, Terry. Hang on just a okay, second. If you haven't muted your line, please go ahead and do that. We can hear the noise in the background there. All right, Terry, go right ahead. All right, yeah, Charles, that's a great question, and it is an ongoing you know, issue because obviously all pastors would like to be full-time and so what sometimes happens is a guy, his church is growing and so he tries to be full-time and then maybe six or eight months later he realizes it's just not quite enough so then he goes back to being bivocational and, and a lot of times a guy feels bad about that. He feels like that's somehow a failure and what I try to say to him is no, that's not a failure. This is just the real life issues of your church. You know, maybe you have a new family that comes in that's more affluent and the offerings go up and maybe that family moves away and the offerings go back down when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, he moved in and out of bivocational ministry numerous times. There were times when he had to make tents, and there were times when he said, I am amply supplied. So it's okay for our pastors. We just have to show them that that's okay to move in and out of bivocational ministry as the situation requires. But it is a challenge because obviously it's easier and, and you know, for a pastor and his family if he doesn't have to work a second job. But we just talk to them. You know, what I always say to them is if your church is constantly broke and never has money for anything – and then it's time to ask yourself, is it because they really can't afford a full-time pastor? And that's, of course, a question every pastor has to answer on their own. But a lot of times guys just say, well, I see the reality of it, and so I'm just going to go find another job. All right, very good. Charles, you still there? All right, we may have gotten him muted. We still had a lot of background noise. Okay, we're going to mute and unmute the call Conference again. muted. All right, very good. Do we have anyone else with a question? Please give us your name and where you're calling from. Yes, someone else. Go ahead and jump right in. Um, is it okay if I ask a question? Yes, go right ahead. Uh, this is Dean Turbeville. I serve in Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, and I have been a bivocational for, uh, pastor, intentional bivocational pastor for about 20 years. Uh, and I guess the struggle that I have is with that burnout issue of, you know, uh, of, of balancing work and, and everything. I mean, I've done it for 20 years, but there comes a point when you, you kind of think, you know, should I, should I step out and, and just do vocational ministries and, you know, and, and is the church growing? Our church has grown. I mean, it's not financially that it has to be bivocational at this point. We have plenty of money and plenty of people. It just, you know, I, I guess I struggle with the fact that I've always journeyed and, and been a bivocational pastor. It's all I've known for the last 20 years, and I guess and, and struggling with that burnout. Could you talk more about how do you overcome that? How do you, how do you, um, what are resources we can use to fill our cup? Uh, you know, while we're trying to struggle those you know 70, 80 hour kind of work weeks. Well, the first thing you want to do, Dean, of course, and you already know this, you want to obviously stay close to the Lord because he can rejuvenate us and fill us with his spirit even when physically we're tired. Of course, you already know that. You've been doing it for 20 years. You've refilled that cup many, many times. But a second thing I think that you have to ask is just, you know, if you are getting to a place in life where maybe it is time for you to be in a vocational ministry instead of bivocational, that's okay too, you know. 
there's nothing there's not one is not better than the other we just move through different phases in our lives and you know i think when we do get a little older if you've been doing this 20 years and you're not you're not 21 anymore you know there may come a point where you say i physically can't do this anymore and so then you begin to say okay lord then open up opportunities for me to be vocationally just you know full time at a church and so there's nothing wrong with that you know i'm not sure there is a way to keep doing it forever working 80 hours a week without physically getting wore out at some point you know you might ask your church about vacation time you know a lot of times pastors don't take as much vacation as they need and sometimes you know a couple of weeks away rejuvenate us as well and help us catch up on that lost sleep and you know the particular church I serve actually gives me a month vacation which is a lot of vacation most pastors don't get that much but they recognize that if I don't rejuvenate myself and I won't be around much longer uh, you know I'll drop dead of a heart attack obviously I don't take a month at one time nobody can do that at least I can't but you know a week once every three or four months is wonderful and it's great to know the church recognizes that need so those are all some things we can do to avoid you know burnout there's actually a great book I would recommend you look at it's by Fred Lear L-E-H-R and it's called how to avoid a 70-hour work week and it's a great book and it talks about that very issue okay how to avoid a 70-hour work week is that what it said yes and it's fred lear and lear is h-e-h-r thank you sir very good all right someone else have a question give us your name and where you're calling from all right someone else Bobby, good yes, morning from buddy. Alaska. This is, this is Gary Beers in Alaska. Oh, hi, Listen, Gary. I good to have you with us again. Ask Terry your question, Gary. Alaska. I feel like we need, desperately need, a national focus on the bivocational pastor, especially to get them to come to difficult places like Vermont and Alaska, perhaps even focusing on some lay preachers who would come. Does Terry have any suggestions on what we might do as a denomination to really lift up the role of the bivocational pastor and get them to move to some of our pioneer or difficult places to serve? Good question, Gary. Terry, before you answer, we're still getting a lot of background noise. We're going to mute the conference for you to respond so we can hear you clearly, okay? Okay. Conference muted. All right, Terry, if you'll respond to Gary's question. Well, Gary, I think that's a great, great thing to discuss. You know, we do need more focus on bivocational ministry. I think two things. One is we, we do have an ally at the North American Mission Board, and that's George Garner. I don't know if any of you know George Garner, but he is a wonderful fellow. Uh, he was the state DOM in Utah for a long, long time, and he knows what it's like to be in a pioneer missionary. And now he is the small church bivocational consultant at the North American Mission Board. He's been there I'm going to say six months. It might be a year, but it's a, it's a relatively new position for him, and, and it's a great thing. So there is already some undercurrent within the organization to realize that we need to focus on that, and so I'm grateful for that, and I'm hoping that he will be able to make people think more clearly about this issue the longer he's in that role. So that's one thing that's already happening. But I think the other thing we have to do is we have to realize that bivocational ministry is not only a rural and pioneer missionary it is that but it is also it's also an urban problem if you go into an urban setting most small churches that have 75 80 people in an urban setting cannot possibly afford a full-time pastor I mean, if you're in boston which is not too far from it's three hours from where i live i mean it's two thousand dollars a month to rent an apartment well a church of 70 people can't pay their pastor that much so he's going to be bivocational and so i think we have to help people grasp that because the more people can grasp that then the more the 
the denomination is going to serve its largest contingent, you know, contingency. And if we can begin to let people see that and realize that, then there will become resources and focus and emphasis available. I think another thing we can do is, is state conventions. You know, sometimes it's hard to turn the national denomination, but state conventions. We just need to go to some of the execs in the state convention, just ask, hey, can you put a bivocational pastor on the platform this year at the state meeting to say a prayer, read some scripture, preach the sermon, do something? And oftentimes we have more influence at that level, and if we can begin to get those just some good guys in there to just be recognized, to just be a person up front, then that will help raise the level of bivocational ministry in the minds and hearts of our denomination. And I think it's something we've got to do. We've got to be intentional about it and, and make it happen. I think there are even a few, not many, but a few mega churches that we can actually kind of come alongside of them and say, hey, would you as a mega church be willing to bless some bivocational guys with some books or some resources or some things like that? And, and there are some folks, a Jay Wolf, who's at First Baptist of Montgomery, Alabama, a great guy. I mean, he's the kind of guy who came alongside of. He's done some things here in Vermont. And, you know, so there are some, some bigger pastors and bigger churches that are beginning to realize that not everyone wants to be the pastor of a church of 3,000 people. There are some who intentionally desire to pastor a church of 50 because they feel called to reach those still small places. And so we just need to make some partnerships between those kind of folks and, and get the resources kind of moved around the way they need to be. I don't know. Does that answer the question, Gary? Yeah, Gary, Gary's muted again. Let's unmute the line and see if he has a follow-up. All right, Gary, do you have a follow-up there? No, just thank you so much, Terry. I appreciate what you do. Uh, again, we have to continue to work at uh, inviting, encouraging people even to move into our areas. And uh, jobs are difficult to find at times. And so uh, finding uh, someone who will come, for example, to Alaska, as a bivocational is a is a major challenge. Appreciate your comments. Thank you. All right. Someone else have a, a question or a comment for uh, Terry? Give us your name and where you serve. This is Randy Creamer, the North American Mission Board. Hi, Randy. Hey. hey. Ask your question. This is just a follow-up question to Terry. Is this uh, the follow-up what you've just answered, is this an all-or-nothing type involvement? Terry, can we still look at the number of, you know my world of volunteers here at NAM, um, folks that could say, hey, I could come alongside for eight months, nine months out of the year, particularly within some of the networks that come self-contained, that is RVers, campers, and stuff like that. Can they really add value, or is it the total commitment where we move there? And I'm thinking of those who are retired or financially, they're pretty much set, they're independent, uh, which really loosens up churches. Is there a valid contribution that those folks can make to what's going on? Well, first of all, I want to say, hey, Randy. <laughs> Randy and I have known each other for 20-some years, so it's good to hear your voice. <laughs> hey, you know, in Vermont, we have used a lot of MSC missionaries, people who will come for four months to two years. And actually, I have seven full-time staff members on my association staff who are all MSC. They've all either raised their own support or provided from their retirement. And honestly, we couldn't do what we do in Vermont without them. I'm one person with over 9,000 square miles, and I'm supposed to cover. There's no way that I could do all that with these seven full-time staff members who helped me do that. And there's actually some meetings going on today that some of those guys are leading because I'm doing this and they knew I couldn't be everywhere. And so I believe there is a place for that. You know, we have to just think strategically of how to use them. I think the reason why sometimes 
these mission volunteers that are willing to come long-term for, say, six months or so, the reason they're sometimes not effective is because we are oftentimes are not, are not thinking through how to use them effectively. We have to say on our end, what is the strategy that we have in our area, and then what manpower do we need to fund that strategy or to make that strategy work, instead of just saying, well, here's a warm body with a camper. Let's stick them somewhere and hope they do something, because that's frustrating. And then when they leave, you think, well, I put a lot of energy into that. Nothing came from it. But if we can have a strategic spot where we need someone to do something very specific for that period of time, for three months, six months, eight months, and then they come and they spend that time there, then they can relieve a pastor of a lot of pressure if they're very focused on what they, they do. So we treat all of our MSC workers just as if they were fully funded staff members and we have job descriptions and we have staff meetings and we treat them as if they were just exactly as if the association had hired them or if the churches had hired them and that's the way we do it and that just gives them a very specific role. Uh, but we will have, you know, we have seven at the association level. We also have half a dozen around the association working at local churches that are doing things. So there is a, a real role for adult volunteers who are willing to come for six months or a year, but the back the the backbone of our work will of course be the people who are willing to live in an area and be there, whether they're indigenous or whether they move there from somewhere else. We'll never be able to do it all with volunteers, but volunteers can be a huge help to to what we're doing. Very good, thank you, Randy. A follow up. All right. Anyone else have a question for uh, Terry? Please give us your name and where you serve. Bobby? Yeah, speak right up. This is Bill Carter with the uh, Garland County Association in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I was wondering uh, if uh, you have any tips for getting vocational or uh, bivocational pastors uh, really engaged on associational level. Uh, what can we do to uh, get their hearts and, and uh, uh, utilize their time to where uh, they are actively involved in the association. Yeah, that's a great question, Bill, and it is something we're still working on. But one of the things that we have learned over the years is that, and, and I don't know if this would be true in other places, but here in Vermont we find that a bivocational guy would rather come to an evening meeting than a Saturday meeting. And the reason is is because, you know, he's worked till five and if he comes and spends two hours at the association meeting, then he's done for, that's done for the day. But if I ask him to take his one day Saturday and come to a meeting, that's just that's I'm asking a lot of him. He'd rather give me two hours in the evening than two hours on a Saturday and mess up his weekend. Now I don't know if that's accurate everywhere, but that's what we found in Vermont. And so the the old idea was we're gonna have these meetings on Saturday so the bivocational guys will come. Well, they weren't coming anyway because that's their, they got, that's when they cut the grass. It's when they spend time with their family. It's when they go over to the next town. If you're in Vermont, you go over to the next town to go shopping because there's nothing in your town to buy. You know, so if, uh, you know, so we're just finding they would rather come to something for a couple of hours in the evening and usually we have to provide a meal to make that work out because they're coming from their job to this meeting and so we start with a meal and then have whatever the meeting is that we're having. So that's, that's one way that we're getting them involved is just thinking through when to schedule those things and even though Saturday has been oftentimes when associations did their thing we're finding that most of them don't want that they would prefer to keep Saturday for themselves so that's one thing we do the other thing we do is we go to them a lot you know I'm very rarely in the office you know I go to of course we have 9,000 miles that we cover but I go to the pastors and sometimes we'll meet them on their lunch hour and say you know if you just give me 30 minutes and then I can share with them kind of one-on-one whatever it is that we're trying to share with the pastors at that time now that's very labor-intensive on my part but it's the only way I know to do it, I've not been able to 
find other ways to do it for some of the guys, so we just sort of do it like that. Uh, I meet a lot of the guys for breakfast, you know, early in the morning, at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, eat them for breakfast, because then they can go on to their work and, and go do it then. So we just had to adjust our schedules to, to match more what their schedules are like, and that seems to have worked for us. But there's still some that are not engaged that probably won't be. You know, they're just really intensely busy, and they're not going to come to a meeting, and we've just come to a place where we accept that as being the way it is. Very good. Thank you. All right. Uh have one more question here for for you, Terry, and we may have uh, time for a couple of more uh, from our participants. Uh, we don't give uh, recognition very often to our associational ministry assistant here for Huron Southeastern Associations, Teresa Thomas, but she produces our audio conference for pastors for us, and she had a question she's passed to me by note, so I'm going to pass that on to you, Terry. She's taking avid notes here herself. Uh, but she said, you said in the beginning you want to train and encourage small churches to do big ministry. Uh, what, in your opinion, are the best ministries for small churches to invest their time and resources into? Well, you know, I have two two things that we focused on here in Vermont. Um, one of them comes out of my personal passion, um, and that's young people. You know, I think that a lot of small churches do not have a lot of young people in them, and if we want small churches to have young people, then we're going to have to make an emphasis on young people. And that does not in any way diminish the senior adults who make up a lot of small churches. We thank God for them, but if they want to have a church that will be there for their grandkids and their great-grandkids, then we're going to have to focus on that. And so we have really urged our churches to do focus on youth ministry as much as they can. Obviously, different ones have different levels of success at it, but that's a big ministry that we can do. Just because you're a small church, why can't you have a big youth ministry? For instance, the church that I'm a member of will have 65 or 70 teenagers who will show up here you know, on a Wednesday night for our youth program, and we've put a lot of energy into that. We've put a lot of money into it to make it one of the most successful ministries that we have. Now, on a typical Sunday morning, we'll have 120 people, you know, maybe 130 people, 150 on a really good day, and 25 to 30 percent of that audience will be teenagers who we've reached to the youth ministry for coming without their parents. So, you know, we've just done that. It's a big ministry that we can have that even a small church can have. They may not be able to have that many, but they can have something. Uh, the other issue that we've done a lot of in Vermont is trying to care for the poor. You know, we live in a changing culture where people don't come to church as much as they ought to. People don't think about God as much as they should. But what most people in the society think churches should be doing is helping the poor. But that's oftentimes the very thing that small churches don't do because we don't have any money. You know, we don't have enough money to help the poor. And so we've just said to churches, what can we do to somehow reach the poor people in your community even though we don't have a lot of money? So we have three soup kitchens that are all three run, well, two soup kitchens and then one street ministry that are all run by churches that have less than 50 people in their Sunday morning worship service. And it's just a, a miracle of God's provision every month when we feed those people and take care of those people. It's thousands of hot meals that we provide every year, and we're able to access some money from the World Hunger Fund, but most of it just comes from just churches just digging deep and trying to help the needy among them. So those are two huge ministries that we can have that are huge impact. I mean, the com community notices when a church is feeding the hungry and when a church is helping young people. That's two things the community responds to and says, wow, now that's the kind of church I want to go to. And it's, uh, you know, those are two things. And there's other things. We have churches doing other things as well, but those those are two that we really try to emphasize in our churches as much as we can because they're big ministries, but small churches can do them. Very good. Thank you. All right. Do we have another question? If you'll give us your name and where you serve. Hey, Bobby. This is Don Vickers. 
Yes, Don, speak right up. Go right ahead and ask oh, your question. What what kind of resources out there, internet-wise or uh, other, are there for bivocational pastors that can help them uh, continue in some training, maybe get some tools, some helps, um, maybe even do some of the things that you're talking about uh, in helping a, a lay, layman uh, prepare a sermon? Well, there, there's lots and lots of resources out there, and, you know, Here's what I always tell bivocational pastors. You know, there's there's lots of correspondence schools, and I think any training is better than no training. So anyone you sign up for is going to help you in some way. But I, I always say to a guy, boy, you know, what if two years from now you're halfway through that training program and you decide that you would actually like to get a degree? Well, the question is, is that program that you're in got any kind of accreditation? And if it doesn't, then you're going to be disappointed if two years later, you know, you started it thinking, I don't want a degree, I just want to learn a little bit. Well, then halfway through it, you want a degree, and you realize, well, I've got to start over again. So I always say find some kind of training program that has some kind of accreditation from somewhere. And there's plenty of them out there, you know, on the Internet that you can find. You know, most of our schools now, you know, Liberty has a huge uh, distance learning program that pastors can be involved in. You know, most of Golden Gate, you know, where I graduated from, has a great CDL kind of program where it's called the Contextualized Learning Centers some pretty neat things they're doing. So there's some pretty good stuff out there that really credible institutions are doing, and I say get hooked up with one of those. Now, as far as training the lay people, well, here's a great question. Why not take the stuff you're learning if you're a pastor trying to, you know, take a course? Why not teach that to the lay people? Why not say, you may not be able to do it on Sunday morning, but why not say, you know, I'm taking this class on Romans through Liberty, and so for the next six months on Wednesday night, we're going to learn the book of Romans, and it helps you with your Obviously, preparation because you've already studied it, but it also you're now giving seminary level material to lay people, and that's why not? Why not raise the level of training in our churches by giving those people the same thing we're doing? And if you're in a situation where it will work, why not do a seminary extension class in your church for all your lay people? Now, obviously, that doesn't work for everybody, but there are some. We have one center, one of our churches right here in Vermont. It's now an extension center of Southern Seminary, and they've got this giant flat-screen TV on the wall, and we have six or eight guys there pretty much any Friday night who are taking a course from Southern Seminary, you know, learning the same stuff they'd be learning in the classroom. And it's uh, in this world in which we live, there's all kind of stuff out there that we can do. Just most of us, we think, well, we're not big enough to do that. Well, why not? Why not have three or four? Three or four people learning is better than none. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very good. Thank you, Don. All right. Do we have someone else has another question? Give us your name and where you're serving. All right, I tell you what, we're going to wrap up our Q&A. Let's mute our uh, conference line. And then, Terry, go ahead and mute there. Conference muted. Terry, we appreciate your time. And uh, let me do this. Uh, uh, we've got just about a minute left, so we're, we've run a little long with our Q&A. But uh, why don't you give us kind of a wrap-up? How, how, what would you like to say to us in closing that's relevant to developing leaders in small churches? Well, I think the most important thing to remember is that just because you're a small church does not mean you're a weak church or an ineffective church. You can be a healthy, vibrant, strong small church. I mean, America was won to Christ by vibrant, strong small churches, so we can do this. With the help of the Holy Spirit and with the right motivation and training, we can be healthy, vibrant small churches. And I just say, let's just do it. Let's get out of this poor me mentality and start looking to a great God who can do this if we'll just let him. Very good. Terry, we so appreciate you coming and spending your time and sharing uh, your expertise with us. 
Uh, I know we surely hadn't answered all of the questions about how to develop leaders in a small church or bivocational church, but my prayer today is that uh, today's conference has been a help and uh, hopefully it will get us thinking uh, in the right direction about some of these things that you've given us and some of the tools that you've mentioned to help get us on the right track uh, in this area. For our audio conference ministry for pastors, I'm Bobby Gilstrap. We want to thank you today for joining us. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Audio Conference for Pastors. Listen to future episodes by visiting audioconferenceforpastors.com or by subscribing on iTunes. An archive of past episodes is also available. Join us next time as we continue to develop leaders to their God-given capacity on the Audio Conference for Pastors.